welcome to the What to Gain for Your Brain podcast with me, Kirsten Mortimer. I am a neuroscience major in my fourth year at Pomona College in Claremont, California. At this stage of my life, I have way more questions than answers about the world we live in. I love neuroscience, but it is one of my only classes I've taken where the concluding sentence for every topic is, and well, we actually still don't know the answer to this. It is truly profound how complex the brain is. Usually, when I have questions on a day-to-day basis, I approach friends or family, but questions regarding the brain, I thought that going directly to the expert sources would be much more fitting. During the fall semester of my junior year in 2019, Dr. Srinath Samudrala came from the Pomona Valley Hospital Medical Center to Pomona College to give a three-part lecture series on the clinical applications of neuroscience. This included a lecture on neuroanatomy and pathophysiology, one on neurosurgery, trauma, stroke, and spinal cord injury, and a final lecture that included case studies from his work in the neurosurgery stroke program at Pomona Valley. I found that volunteering to help him in his demonstrations of where certain incisions are done and answering questions related to how stroke severity is assessed drew me deeper into the subject. I approached Dr. Sammy Jala after his last lecture and asked how I could get more involved, and he warmly invited me into the life of a neurosurgeon, where we began discussing what he sees frequently while treating people at Pomona Valley. While he treats one patient at a time, he expressed desire to focus on something broader to help more people at once, something that we could bring to others' attention that is a micro-change that results in changes at a macro level. Hence, vitamin D entered the conversation. Throughout my senior year, we continued to have fascinating phone calls about the relationship between vitamin D and stroke risk. We even pitched a proposal to the stroke team and the neuroscience committee at Pomona Valley Hospital to measure serum vitamin D levels of individuals presenting with stroke at six weeks and three months, then assessing their incidence of infections, functional status, and length of hospitalization. I was very excited and interested to see how vitamin D status would have an effect on stroke rehabilitation. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we weren't able to carry on with this proposal, but through doing this project, I've stumbled onto a lot of information that I think is worth bringing to people's attention. With his exposure to community health and its many underlying trends and patterns, I'm so grateful that Dr. Samudrala helped narrow my focus of stroke and wellness down into one cohesive and hopefully helpful project. After neuroscience and the complexity of the brain, nutrition and wellness are the next topics I am most passionate about. Getting to combine these subjects, has led me down an academic rabbit hole that has resulted in this podcast that I truly enjoyed conducting the research for. During 2020, I also started listening to about eight different podcasts and found them to be a very helpful way of thoroughly absorbing information from expert sources. In this way, I wanted to bring the expert sources and everything that I discovered directly to you. The first few podcasts, we will discuss and get a good base understanding of the brain, cardiovascular disease risks, stroke rehab complications, and vitamin D's effect on the brain. Then, in the last few episodes, we will go into vitamin D's effect on stroke risk and rehabilitation, why focusing on things at a micro level can help on a macro level, and the social or economic factors that may influence stroke risk or vitamin D status. dive into our talk with Dr. Samudrala, I'm going to talk a little bit about why understanding stroke risk and complications during post-stroke rehab are important. Stroke is one of the leading causes of death and disability worldwide. Although there has been a reduction in case fatality after stroke by about 40 to 60 percent in developed countries in the last few decades, 
This is from increased use of hypertensive medication and reduced smoking, the general aging of the population, and an increase in cardiovascular risk factors may lead to an expected increase of stroke occurrence by 3.4 million people between 2012 and 2030. This means that while the incidence of stroke might be declining, the prevalence will continue to increase. In a recent report from the American Heart Association, it was found that the mean global lifetime risk of stroke increased significantly from 1990 to 2016 at 22.8% to 24.9%, but is actually an increase of 8.9% after adjusting for competing risk of death of other causes besides stroke. Additionally, in the United States from 2014 to 2015, both the average annual direct and indirect costs of stroke and cardiovascular disease was estimated to be $351.3 billion. The most common risk factors for stroke are high levels of cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and smoking, and one out of three U.S. adults partake in one of these habits or conditions. Statistics for stroke haven't been incredibly optimistic, especially since the U.S. population consumes about three times as much sugar as is recommended daily and has steadily increased sedentary behavior, which both contribute to the increased risk of hypertension, obesity, and diabetes, and then ultimately stroke. If we don't change or address these behaviors, both stroke incidence and prevalence will increase. There are two main types of stroke. Ischemic stroke, accounting for 87% of all strokes, occurs when there is a blockage to a brain artery by clot, whereas the hemorrhagic stroke, 13% of strokes, happens when a weakened blood vessel ruptures in the brain. After treatment, which is usually intravenous thrombolysis and or endovascular thrombectomy, working to remove the clot or repair the rupture, rehabilitation for stroke commonly leads to complications that can inhibit long-term recovery. Those who suffer from stroke can also experience a wide variety of disabilities, commonly needing physical assistance and financial help. Readmission rates are highest at 30 days post-stroke regarding infection, pneumonia, coronary artery disease, and even subsequent stroke. Additionally, 29 to 31% of those recovering from stroke can also go on to develop post-stroke depression. After initial treatment for stroke, difficulties faced throughout rehabilitation can still lead to long-term complications. With that in mind, I'm going to introduce our guest today. Dr. Sami Drala is a board-certified neurosurgeon who specializes in spine surgery, practicing at Pomona Valley Hospital Medical Center in Pomona, California, and Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, California. After earning his bachelor's degree from University of California, Riverside, he attended the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, the NYU School of Medicine for internship and residency, and then the University of Florida for a fellowship in orthopedic surgery of the spine. In addition to his many publications, he is a member of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the American Medical Association, the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, the Association for the Study of Internal Fixation, and is a fellow of the America College of Surgeons. It was imperative that I interview Dr. Sammy Drala because not only is he an encouraging, accomplished, and intelligent person, but as I said, he is an inspiration and driving force behind this project. I became aware of his intelligence and fluency in neurology at the guest lectures of his I attended at my school, but was really introduced to his fascinating metaphysical views on consciousness, how our brains take external stimuli and code them electrically to make our realities, and his overall kindness and care for people while working with him on this project. 
Getting behind the scenes information from a neurosurgeon was so integral to my potential life path and career choices and to have it from someone who cares so deeply about students was a very special experience. The first question asked is about what it's like being a neurosurgeon in the time of COVID. Without further ado, let's learn about what to gain for our brain. like one of the things I notice is that it's when you're working hard when you're when you're doing you know three four operations five operations a week and you're when I have clinic a couple days a week and you have meetings and you you kind of get this rhythm and it's not and it is what it is but then when you have a situation where for one week you don't do anything or two weeks you don't do anything then the next week the third week you go do a bunch of work, it just feels very weird, mm-hmm. uh, inefficient, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's the drama of, of a lot of people dying, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, I talked to one of my colleagues, I don't see that much. I do see some of it, but one of my colleagues was, was saying how, and I tried to get a perspective of it. I, I, I said, so he said, normally he has maybe one or two people, this is an intensive care doctor. Mm-hmm. So he takes care of four ICUs and normally he'll have one, maybe two people die a week, you know, and it's sad, but they're older or whatever. He said, now, you know, it's 10 a week. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's very hard for some of these people that are on the front lines. And even I see people uh, dying a lot more because it seems like COVID they have COVID and yet they die of maybe a, a stroke because right. COVID gives you, it, it seems to infect the blood vessels of the brain and make them more vulnerable to a stroke. Mm-hmm. So, um, or they have COVID and then they get in another infection and then their diabetes gets bad and then they have, you know, a stroke. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's been tough. It's been interesting finally getting back to normal. Um, so that's good. Background growing up. Um, I grew up in a, a household that had some medical people in it. My grandfather was in the pharmaceutical business um, and used to take me to work when I was a little kid. And I got interested in the fact that he would go and visit doctors and and call on doctors and, you know, the pharmaceutical world is very, as, as is now is very important in, in treating patients. And um, I guess because he was uh, in that level, he always kind of wanted me to aspire to the uh, medical level and, you know, kind of gave me the implication that I should do that in probably a subtle or not so subtle way. And so I ended up, uh, leaning towards that. My uncle was a doctor. My mom wanted to be a doctor, but back then women, you know, she was told to marry at 19 and have babies. And so <laughs> she did. So she had me at 19, which yeah. is kind of ridiculous now, but I, you know, she was woefully unprepared to, to raise children. But anyways, um, 
right? I mean, look how old you are, right? Can you imagine three years ago having a baby? Negative. (laughs) Crazy. I mean, I think I didn't grow up until I was 40, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, imagine having a baby at 90. Anyway, so um, that's why when I had this thing in the medicine, and quite honestly, I didn't really, um, you know, back when I was uh, growing up, it was pretty much kind of just figure out what what you're going to do. It's not like, oh, why don't you be an actor, you know, or would you like to go be a, you know, abstract artist? You know, those were not it. It had to be very practical. Uh, And so this was a practical thing. When I went into medicine, then I uh, really liked neurology because I believe that the mind, I'm sorry, let me start over. I believe that the brain is what creates the mind and the mind is what transmutes the physical world into our conception of reality. And so in many ways, the physical world and the entire world we see is is only the way it is through the basis of of this mechanical process by which our brain takes uh, external stimuli and codes it electrically and whatever it does, which we you know, we could talk for hours about, but codes it in such a way that makes it reality. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, so, you know, there's all these atoms and there's a piece of wood and there there's atoms and in between the atoms, in the, the atoms, there's electrons that are mostly little tiny things and there's space. An atom has mostly space and yet we see it as a real thing. And, uh, you know, all this weird stuff, it just kind of helped me with that wanting to understand that so then then what happened i think was that um neurosurgery is a little bit well there there there's a lot of uh concrete aspects about it and that uh interventions are relatively gross meaning you do something and you get it it gets better it's it's pretty uh cut and dry in many ways and the dangers are cut and dry and if you do it well, the benefits are realized. And so I like that. And then, then in the, um, perhaps the last aspect of, of my background is that, uh, you know, our life, our lives tends to be, to pass in a direction in which fortune guides us. And so I was in, and I was at UCLA med school and we had a very good neurosurgery department and I met neurosurgeons who were really nice people and good people. And so I liked them and we hit it off and they encouraged me and the department was good. So that I got a good experience and then I got into a good residency. So uh, fortune had it that I was able to go into that. I like that. That's a really good answer. I like kind of how like almost meta that gets kind of also, just how the direct organic, you know, structures of our brain result in thoughts. And it's just, it's really incredible. It's kind of why I'm in neuro. It's just, it's so complex and amazing that this happens inside our bodies. Um, would you say, so as a neurosurgeon, how would you say that cardiovascular disease plays a role in risk for further brain injury and recovery post-surgery? And what is important for post-stroke rehab? Yeah, so uh, we are, you know, we are now looking at, and everyone knows how our survival is is much greater now. I mean, speaking of which, it's interesting during COVID, survival dropped like a year and a half, the average mm-hmm. survival. 
or something like that. Anyways, it's really interesting that how big of an impact, but our survival. And, and so, so for example, I'm 57 years old, which, you know, years and years ago, when I was a young man, 57 seems very old. And now it seems like 70 is young and 70, there's lots of 72 year olds, 74 year olds working and contributing. And, and so the, the point I'm making is that as you get older and our lifespan gets longer, what we're looking that we're looking at the way life is going to be is that you need to be active in your 70s and 80s and you want to continue to be active until you're done and then you go you know check out um and with that what prob what, what happens you know is is we're finding out that the organ of the brain uh, you know is not we, we're finding that it's important that the organ of the brain sustain its activity properly through that lifespan so yeah if you're 80 and you have oh let's say you have a car and you run out your your, your tires break down well you change your tires you have a, a body and your knees break down because you're a runner for 75 years you stop running and you stop and you get a knee replacement um you know uh you have too much stress and you smoked and you ate too much fat and you have narrowed vessels in your heart you can get a bypass well what about the brain we're seeing that you know alzheimer's dementia people get dementia for lots of reasons people get strokes with deficit and it's really no point to live after 75 if you have a stroke that prevents your brain from giving you meaningful life and as we as we said earlier the the brain is is the is the uh the, the transformational agent that allows you to perceive and, and live in this reality. So cardiovascular health uh, and vascular health of the brain stroke are important because uh, along with other degenerative processes of the brain, because as we're living older and older, it's important that we have a functional, uh, useful brain. And, and this is a lot of things. It's, it's more than just being able to see you know, can you be happy? Can you have an anxiety-free life? If, if you can't see and you can't hear, well, what kind of anxiety will you have? If you don't have endorphin-producing agencies or, or relaxing GABA-producing agencies in the brain that keep your brain relaxed, you know, how are you going to have a good life? If you can't put together thoughts of, did I turn off the stove and where am I going to be at, at 1 p.m. and how long does it take to get dressed, et cetera? So, so my point is that as uh, that I think we all realize that as we live longer, our brains deteriorate just like other parts of our brain that are more mechanical. Sorry, just like other parts of our body that are more mechanical. And our brains can deteriorate, leading to a poor quality of life. So we need to maintain our functional brain's ability uh, through uh, cardiovascular maintenance, through maintaining the blood supply and health of our brain. And, um, and so some of that, what's gonna happen, uh, think about it. how would it be if, if um, we all said like, okay, Kirsten, maybe you, uh, you're a swimmer, right? So maybe in the next 30 years, you're gonna have a shoulder problem, right? Swimmers get shoulder problems and you're gonna have a cortisone injection and you're gonna have a 
a time when you go through therapy for a month, three months, and you're going to have time where you wear a brace for your shoulder because you hurt your shoulder because you were swimming so much that then when you're 50, you did something, uh, lifted something and you got a shoulder injury. You had, a, you know, you had some stem cells put into your shoulder to repair a tendon. All right. Well, what would it be like if if we were saying, all right, Dr. Samadrala, when you're when you're 70 and you have a little tiny stroke, you know, we're going to give you some stem cells so that your your memory gets better. Your you you uh, your speech is still good, so that you're not off balance as much as you were. Can you believe that in the olden days people used to have strokes and they'd be left with a deficit, uh, speech deficit or paralysis, they couldn't walk for the rest of their life. So I see stroke rehab as kind of that, which is that we are going to be, we, we are a long ways away probably from replacing brain cells and making them new or adding or transplanting a frontal lobe to somebody, but we are not a long ways away from taking small certain areas of the brain that are injured and enhancing their recovery so that the deficit is not so large. And I think that that's where we'll be in the next 10, 20 years. That's exciting. Yeah. That would be, yeah. Um, so what would you say about the most common post-stroke complications you see, whether it's post-stroke depression or post-stroke pneumonia or um, just yeah. decreased quality think, of life? I think the most important, there, there's two phases. One is the early early complications, which are, which are the pneumonia, the uh, bed sores, the uh, difficulty swallowing, you know, swallowing is, is a really complex thing. And, um, and, 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 and the, the longer, uh, and also the inability to live independently or do things on your own are the short-term things. The long-term things are uh, related to being functional uh, it would seem, and, and having independence and having, um, you know, good quality of life. So that would lead to depression. Again, you know, I've seen patients that have stroke. I've seen patients that have heart attacks and they're alive, but their life is not really that good. Mm-hmm. And they, um, not happy. So, you know, what are we doing? Um, uh, so, so you inspired me to do the investigate the vitamin D and vitamin D's effect on um, stroke risk and um, just throughout stroke rehabilitation. So um, can you speak a little to what inspired you to to bring up that and why you think that could that could help those recovering from stroke? Yeah, so I think the vitamin D is a good example of, of where we're going to be in the future with community health with large scale interventions in, in disease. <clears throat> and so that's why it's an attractive example, but specifically because, uh, you know, we, vitamin D is a great example because uh, when I was uh, younger and starting off, nobody knew the importance of something like a vitamin. Uh, we always thought vitamin D is important for rickets, but vitamin D is important in the immune system. And we see, you know, with COVID, what we saw Uh, was that here you have a virus, yet uh, people can be affected. And it's a simple virus. There's lots of viruses like it. There's cold viruses. However, uh, people can be affected dramatically. And we saw that it affected one community of people 
much worse than another community of people just for the simple, uh, I, I think one of the simple reasons of there being different nutrition. And, and we saw that large patterns of behavior. So for example, eating fresh, having access to being able to afford and find and eating fresh vegetables and um, getting out in the sunshine and having normal behaviors could lead to the end result. You, you start off with a normal diet, normal behaviors and getting sunshine. And the end result I'm waving over here is, is a large community amount of death you know, um, or a severe inflammatory reaction related to vitamin D deficiency because of poor immunological regulation. And so again, you know, we, it's kind of ironic because as a surgeon, I fix one person at a time. Uh, and a good week, a good year for me, maybe that I, I help 150 people surgically, which is not a lot. Uh, but, uh, but perhaps the bigger intervention is something where with a broad, broad stroke of, of uh, intervention, we can help you know, millions. And so I see that potential for that as an exciting thing. So you know, in summary, I think that we didn't see the role of something as simple as a vitamin. And we didn't see something as simple as the role of simple behaviors in disease. I mean, we have, yeah, we know that you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't be overweight, uh, et cetera. But here's another example of simple things that can affect uh, results in a large scale manner. So I think that, um, you know, and we can spend millions and billions of dollars on vaccines and on, uh, uh, you know, complex treatments and immunological treatments. But here's something so simple, uh, as in just making sure we have good nutrition, uh, that's very powerful. And that kind of, I just thought that was a really, really good lesson to be learned at this stage in, in, in the, in, uh, you know, in the treatment of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think definitely the, the importance of kind of the micro level to affect the macro level is important. Um, how would you confront maybe like confounding factors that could be seen in, in the literature, such as um, if people might have higher levels of vitamin D, which might benefit their or decrease stroke risk, but that could also just mean that they just get out more and are more active. So like in, in kind of measuring vitamin D on stroke risk, how would you confront like confounding variables? Well, I think that, uh, you know, um, it's so, so challenging with all these variables. So, so complicated. Um, and one of the things that I learned, uh, because I'd like to know yes or no, I'd like to say, you should do this, or I am doing this, therefore I am doing the right thing and I'm telling you to do the right thing. But I think what happens is uh, we, will, we will know in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, what the exact right thing to do is, uh, but we will not know for a while. And so we have to just look at the big picture, you know, I mean, and, 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 and so part of me, part of me wants to have it all distilled in simple form, but the big picture, I think, is that certain populations uh, are at greater risk of these because they don't have all of these things, exercise, exposure to sunlight, decreased stress, um, uh, nutrition with good, good uh, good nutrition without processed foods. 
Um, and, and so I, I guess what I'm saying is I would leave that to the researchers to, to tease all this out. And there may be a way to find a population where one population has all of the factors as the other, except for this difference. And then we can uh, parse out the difference of vitamin D. However, I think for now, what we see is, is just that, you know, that same message of that we've had for a long time uh, is that it, things are multifactorial and you need to do a lot of little things, right? To gain the benefit. I think that's what, um, that's probably what I message I take out of it. Mm. I've, if I've learned anything as a, just even a college student, I've learned there's a lot of different variables and um, confounding factors for anything. <laughs> Everything is just yeah. super complicated, but. Um, I'm just going to get a quick cup of coffee here, but go yeah, ahead. Sure. Tell me, tell me what you, I want to, I want to hear what you thought about all this. I, there's, it's just hard to gauge from the literature exactly what people should be doing. There's so many different ranges for supplementation and also different ranges for bone health versus health for the nervous system. Um, similar, similar to the literature, it's like there's a ton of studies that show that vitamin D can improve stroke risk and, um, you know, better stroke rehab, but there's also a ton of studies that didn't find anything. Um, and then a lot of them list kind of like, oh, we didn't take calcium, um, serum calcium levels into factor. We didn't take activity levels into factor. So I think overall, we just need more um, randomized control trials. Um, and I think that will kind of be, make us be able to more confidently get to the conclusion that vitamin D can help stroke risk. Um, but again, there's just so much, that's kind of why I want to do this podcast is there's just so much confusion out there about it. Um, I have friends that who their doctor, they broke both their elbows and their doctor told them to take a supplement that was 10,000 units. Whereas like the recommendation is like 600 units a day. So there's just so much confusion out there. And then I think it's also hard because, um, different like latitudes getting a certain amount of certain amount of UV, but also like not a lot of foods have vitamin D really like the most heavily, um, fortified or fortified milks are the, have the most vitamin D same with like fatty fish and eggs and some mushrooms. Um, but I think it's just really hard to get in certain communities. And then it's really hard to just figure out what you even should be doing. Cause then there's also different recommendations for pregnant women and then kids and then elderly people. And, um, so then I also kind of wanted to ask, like, what do you think, how could it benefit? Maybe you've noticed the Pomona community specifically. Right. Well, let me just get to a little uh, prediction I have, mm. which maybe you'll see it's true in 10 years. Nicole. That guy was a smart guy, man. He was, oh, he was a genius. Or maybe you won't. But the way that the things have worked in the last 20 years is that I think you're going to find that taking a vitamin B D tablet is not the same as going in the sun and making your own vitamin D. You know, we simplify. We think, oh yeah, oh, you go in the sun, your skin makes vitamin D. You have to wait for it to be absorbed into your body. And then once your vitamin D level rises, life is great, you're, you're healthy. I think what we're gonna see is this. Oh, and they'll say, oh, look, the vitamin D that you make in your skin is the exact same as the vitamin D in this pill. Do you see? All you have to do is take the pill, your levels rise, and you're the same as if the guy that was out in the sun. But I think what you're going to see, 
<coughs> because it's always more complicated than we think it is, is true health is that vitamin D acquired from sun exposure while it rises in the blood also has a cascade of events that creates things that we don't know about or measures or, or creates things that we cannot measure. And that adds a supplemental benefit to our health. And so we don't know about all those things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, so there is, there may be a difference between being exposed, being outdoor exercising in the sun for 45 minutes and taking 3000 units of vitamin D a day, there may be a difference. And so taking 3000 units of vitamin D a day may not give you the benefit of, of running or being exercised outside. So that can explain why these, uh, or just standing outside, that can explain, you know, you talk about confounding factors. So um, you said going into, um, if you take a supplement, it's like, it depends on like what food you take it with. Like you should take it with fat because it's fat soluble. So it'll, you know, um, go into your cells more easily if you, you know, take it with fat or with a meal. Um, so I think there's just, like you said, it's taking it through supplementation and being in the sun are two very different. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, this is just more of an example uh, uh, of, of when you look at why a community such as any indigent population, what does that mean? You know, a population where people cannot necessarily, well, people cannot afford health uh, care the way uh, wealthier communities can. So this indigent population, they don't get screened. They don't understand um, uh, some of the benefits of these things. So for example, I, I'm, you know, I'm a great example. I went to my doctor, when was it? Probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago. And my doctor was a really wonderful lady. And, and, you know, she does the physical and screening and she goes, Oh, your vitamin D is low. You need to take a supplement. And I said, vitamin D. I said, I'm not going to get rickets when she, you know, why do I need to take vitamin? And so she goes, well, and, and then I said, the lesson that I had learned when I was in school is that vitamin D levels are meaningless. That as long as you get vitamin D, that the, they'll be low, they'll be high. It doesn't mean anything that you don't go supplement vitamin D. And she said, well, actually, this was 15 years ago. She goes, there's a lot of studies that show that it can decrease the risk of, of infection, that it modulates and enhances the immune system. People, there were studies that have greater cancer risk because of vitamin D, right? You know this. So mm -hmm. it's an important thing. So she said, here, take this vitamin D and I supplement. I thought, you know what? I'm this, you know, healthy strapping guy. I don't have time to take this kind of stuff. I don't buy into it. And I didn't. Well, um, then I got it checked, whatever, five years ago. And the guy, you know, probably my next physical, I hate to say it, <laughs> 10 years later. Oh, my God. You're busy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. And, uh, and so five years ago, and they're like, you know, dude, your vitamin D is low. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, and this, this, this doctor said, no, no, don't just blow it off. 
there is clear evidence now. You need to do this. <clears throat> and so I said, really? And so I started learning about it. And so, you know, here I am, relatively well-off guy, relatively educated and have access to probably some of the best literature and information and scientific knowledge there is. And I don't know about vitamin D. And so the community, uh, Pomona community with this uh, population that doesn't have access to a lot of this medical knowledge is very vulnerable to all kinds of things. Um, and I think that's the big, big point. And so this is probably the big point and it kind of gets crazy, but the, it kind of goes off tangent, but the big point is, and what I would have wanted you to see if you were with me mm-hmm. is when you come to the rounds and you see all these people, you see 19 year olds with gunshot wounds and you see 40 year olds with major strokes and paralysis and and you see 30 year olds with head injury and you see 60 year olds that can't walk because of orthopedic injuries and obesity and whatever when you see all of this and you say to me dr sam why is there so much suffering here and uh gosh i see all this suffering and i feel like there's something i can do to prevent it or to help it then you will say, well, the first question, why and how can I prevent it? And what you'll see is that all these little things, you know, knowledge about nutrition, knowledge about alcohol and drugs and the impact on the 17-year-old brain and why 16, 17, 18-year-olds shouldn't be drinking and using drugs and damage their brain, the effect of violence on on, uh, changing on numbing the human brain, um, the effect of lack of sleep, uh, you know, all these kinds of things that lead to a community being healthful are not being done in some of these populations. And so we would see that. So my point is in Pomona, the population of the indigent population, there is, we are not lacking because of, of uh, the lack of technology and equipment we have we have machines to do heart transplants or heart surgeries and we have machines to do all kinds of things but we don't have implementation of simple basic things that can lead to a widespread improvement in the health of people and so that explains to me when i go to the hospital and i see these people i go okay this is why they're suffering and, and so then the question is, what can we do? And the good news is we can improve community, uh, a lot of people's health and decrease a lot of suffering by engaging in these simple things that are community health-based. Mm-hmm. Would you say, well, first of all, you're definitely in the right line of work because you see these things and notice trends and patterns and want to help them. Um, so thank you for what you do. Um, but also, would you think the best way to go about this is more just public health education or more pushes for families to have adequate you know, access to vitamin D fortified milk and um, fatty fish and eggs and you know, better produce and foods? Or what do you think? Well, I think, how, I how think, this? yeah, I think there's, uh, a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of impact 
in a lot of different ways. So for example, you know, politically, right? We've been in a politically charged environment. I mean, first of all, I don't understand why people are selling sodas, right? It's like, I mean, why does, why, you know, you go to McDonald's and, you know, they try to push this or all these things. It's like, oh, you know, here's a burger for $3.99, but for $4.99, you get fries in a, in a large drink, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it right there. I mean, yeah, for an extra buck, why wouldn't you get fries in a large drink? It seems like a big, a big benefit, a big boon to pay an extra buck and get it. And so um, I, I think some of these things are political is my point. Yeah. I think, um, um, you know, when you look at it, I, I, I always, I, always, I wondered like, like when you drive through a community, you'll see a park. Well, you know, you need to have parks, you know, I mean, you need to have things where kids can go play and skate and, and do this kind of stuff. Um, um, so I think there's an option politically. I, I don't think the answer is to, to stuff it into, into foods or fortify it, although that yeah. works with folic acid, it works with, it helps, uh, with fluoride, all these things. Um, but I think it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that it's more of a, I think it's the gradual kind of thing. I'll tell you what I think it is. Okay, I'll give you an example. I can't tell you, but I was a vegetarian uh, 30 years ago, okay? Because I didn't like, I would go, and I'm not a vegetarian now, I eat stuff, but but back then I didn't, For went through a phase where I didn't like, you know, the process of killing cows and things like that. And um, I really thought, wow, all this mass slaughter. I mean, you think about it. There's, you think about how many animals we slaughter, cows, chickens, pigs. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of animals being slaughtered, right? Mm. It's just, it is what it is. Okay. I thought, gosh, isn't there a way we could not slaughter hundreds of millions of animals? I'm looking at my dog, you know, and thinking, wow, I, I'm sure that cow has the same level of consciousness as my dog. And I wouldn't want that to happen to my dog. So I became a vegetarian. Anyways. It was, uh, if you try to pass that message to people to become vegetarian, or you say, don't kill animals, okay? It was almost impossible. However, what happened? What we saw is that there may have been one vegetarian out of 100. Now there's probably 10 or 20 vegetarians out of 100. People used to eat meat three times a day. Now people say, let's eat meat one meal a day. And people say, let's skip, you know, Monday, meatless Mondays. And now people say, well, I want a burger, but I can have, you know, Beyond Burger or, or whatever. And now you have industries that are profitable, encouraging people not to eat meat. So here is a healthful thing, a good thing, a, uh, Everyone would agree, except for perhaps the beef industry, but everyone would probably agree that it's a good thing that we eat less meat, we slaughter less animals, and we live healthier. And it occurred because of individuals with behavior. It occurred because of technology, someone being able to make a, a meatless substitute that was actually healthy and not bad for you. Um, 
because of gradual education. Uh, it, it happened because it was necessary, because we said, you know what? Um, it, it's, it's very expensive to have all this meat. Uh, and so um, that's how it happened. Well, I see that's how it's gonna happen with nutrition leading to longer life and healthier life for all people over the course of the next several decades. Slow little changes, whether it's a financial reason. Yeah, now, now you know, Burger King or, or, or is it McDonald's, but they own a meatless company, mm -hmm. okay? Um, you know, so, so they, they have to get into the game. Mm -hmm. So it's a financial thing. It's an, it's, uh, it's a political thing. It's, it's, uh, economic thing. And, and you have all these forces working together in the community, you'll get a change. So we will get that, I think, mm -hmm. with nutrition and, and, and healthful living. Yeah, no, I agree. I like that answer. Um, as a, as a last kind of fun question, how would you describe the brain in three words? Uh, consciousness, potential, and bliss. Why bliss? Because if there's no bliss, there's no point in living. The universe was fundamentally created, in my, my opinion, because of bliss. I like that answer. That's the a, that's a first one like that that I've gotten. I'm glad you're doing well. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you as well. Okay. All right, Kirsten. Well, thank you. And I'm sorry. We didn't, so I wish I could wish I could have shown you around and oh, it's all right. You to, know, I'm glad we got to do this. That's that's important, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Take care of yourself. You, too. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> bye bye. bye. <laughs>we can replace dead brain cells, maintaining proper cardiovascular health through lifestyle choices such as activity, sleep, diet, and less substance use, as well as maintaining proper and adequate vitamin levels in a population could lead to large-scale interventions that might decrease stroke risk. Dr. Samudrala is exposed to all this suffering and is looking for ways to prevent them, meaning that even simple things can affect results on a large-scale manner. Now that we understand a little bit more about the brain, in the next podcast, we are going to talk a lot about vitamin D and how it functions on a molecular level. Get excited because we will also be talking to Expertscape's 2019 number one worldwide expert in sunlight and vitamin D deficiency, Boston University's Dr. Michael F. Pollack. See you soon.